Well, we're moving ahead in our New Testament challenge. Um, I really do hope you're benefiting from these daily readings in the New Testament, a chapter each day. And I, I'm praying that the Lord will do uh, His work in you as you are faithful to read His Word. He promises in the prophet Isaiah that His Word will never return void. It will always accomplish the work for which it was intended. So when you invest your time uh, and lives to, to being in His Word and meditating on His Word, His work, Word will do His its work in your life, and um, I'm praying that for you. Um, well, our reading today is the 16th chapter of Matthew. I hope you have already read that chapter and thought about it for yourself. Uh, if you have not, I strongly encourage you to pause this podcast and 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 go read it and prayerfully consider what it has to say and then come back and, and uh, listen to whatever it is that I may have to say. And I'll go ahead and tell you, this chapter, Matthew 16, is, an, is a very important chapter, and there's a lot to consider here. Um, so just <laughs> buckle up. I have a few things to say. I think there are actually five things that I want to point out from Matthew 16. And so let's, uh, let's get going with it. The first thing I want to point out that sort of is illustrated to me in this chapter are two kinds of unbelief. Two kinds of unbelief. Um, as the chapter opens, we find the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to Jesus to test him and force him to prove to their satisfaction that he really is who he claims to be. That's the, that's the very first verse. Their, their unbelief seemed to have a, a cynical and even malicious intent behind it. Jesus tells them, much like he did uh, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that they, of all people, should be able to understand who Jesus was because they were the experts and teachers of God's word. They had the scriptures, and he chastises them for being able to interpret correctly things like the weather, but not being able to interpret correctly the most important thing, the scriptures. That's verses 2 and 3. And Jesus simply told them again the same thing he told them back in chapter 12, that the only thing he would give them is the sign of Jonah, quote-unquote, which refers to his resurrection from the dead on the third day well we move ahead and and in the next episode we find the disciples fretting because they had forgotten to bring any food with them that's in verse five and jesus is, is astonished at their anxiety um, since they had just witnessed and we have just read in the last two chapters how jesus miraculously multiplied next to nothing into enough to feed thousands five thousand men in chapter 14, 4,000 men in chapter 15. And uh, he reminds them of those things in verses 9 and 10 and asks them the obvious question in verse 11, how is it that you fail to understand? But there's a big difference in their unbelief and that of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which is why Jesus twice warns them against, quote, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's Matthew uh, chapter 16, verse 6 and 11. And he was warning his disciples not to let their unbelief turn into the kind of unbelief of the Pharisees and Sadducees. There is a difference between refusing to believe and looking for ways not to believe and just simply being slow to believe. The Pharisees and the Sadducees refused to believe and they wouldn't believe 
unless Jesus proved himself to them by a sign from heaven. By contrast, the disciples weren't refusing to believe. They were simply slow to believe. Jesus had no compassion on the Pharisees and Sadducees for their cynical and hardened unbelief, whereas he will rebuke, yet uh, he, will, he will rebuke, but he will still show compassion on the disciples uh, as they are slowly coming into understanding and belief. And that is no doubt a lesson for us as well. The Lord wants us to believe. But the reality is, and it is because we're broken and sinful, but because of that, we are often slow to believe just like the disciples were. But this passage is encouraging for just that reason because the Lord will be patient with us and show us compassion and help us to believe and grow in our faith just like he did his own first disciples. Let's, let's move ahead in the chapter and, and here think about Peter believing and confessing Jesus to be the Christ. So this section of Matthew 16 relays to us the account of Peter uh, confessing his belief that Jesus is, in fact, as he worded it in verse 16, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Jesus had asked his disciples uh, what people were saying about who he was. He asked that in verse 13. And in verse 14, the disciples throw out different names. Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 15 and asks them what they think. Peter, as was usually the case, spoke up first. And that is when he made his confession. What I want to point out to you here is what Jesus tells Peter after he confesses his faith. Jesus blesses Peter, and he tells them that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 17. What happened to Peter here is the same thing that happened to Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, when it says, quote, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. It was God the Father, Jesus says, who gave Peter the faith by which he confessed Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. It was not revealed to him by anyone else but by the Lord. This is even further encouragement to the first point we, we mentioned. When we're not hardened and cynical in our unbelief like the Pharisees and Sadducees, but and we have a desire and understand to believe even though we're slow to believe the lord isn't merely compassionate but he also has the power to give us the faith when we need it that is incredibly comforting but let's think some more about this let's think about the church uh and the keys to the kingdom that'll be the third thing we think about the church and the keys to the kingdom um in verses 13 through 20 Jesus tells Peter that on Peter's confession, he would build his church. He makes um, three great assurances to Peter. He gives three great assurances to Peter about the church. First, he said the Lord would build it. Jesus said, I will build my church. We see this playing out in the book of Acts. As that early church met together in Acts chapter 2, we are told that, quote, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's at the very end of chapter 2 of Acts. That's a picture of the Lord building his church. Secondly, Jesus promised to protect his church, giving assurance that not even the gates of hell would ultimately prevail against it, verse 19. Now, let me add to this uh, that the church can throw itself out of God's favor, and like he did with the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, the Lord can threaten to spit you out of my mouth. 
as he told them. I mean, we can throw ourselves out of God's favor, but the Lord will not allow even the strongest forces in this world to bring his church into defeat or extinction. Uh, church squabbles are often petty, but if we give in to them, the Lord is under no obligation to continue to look on that church with favor. To the contrary, uh, however, if the church refuses to let that squabble get a foothold and refuses to let the petty disagreements grow, the Lord promises victory to his church because he desires his church to exist and thrive for the glory of his name. And then finally, he gives to Peter what he calls the keys of the kingdom and tells him, quote, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, verse 20. What in the world is he talking about? Well, there are a lot of interpretations of that. In my mind, the most reasonable interpretation here is that the keys of the kingdom are the gospel itself. Keys are how you gain entrance to something. And the gospel is how a person gains entrance into the kingdom of God, or in Matthew's language, the kingdom of heaven. So all of this talk about binding and loosing has to do with preaching of the gospel, in my mind, and whether people accept it or reject it. If they accept the gospel, they will be loosed from their sins, while they will continue to be bound in their sins if they reject it. So in sum, the Lord promises to build his church and to protect his church and he commissions his church to preach the gospel as the means to this end. There is no reason for the church to be discouraged or downtrodden. The Lord has promised these things, and that should give us reason for great rejoicing and great hope when we gather. Let me say a word about the cost of discipleship from this chapter. Jesus foretells his own sufferings and crucifixion to his disciples in verses 21 to 23. And then calls his disciples to follow him in the same way in verse 24. Satan tried to use Peter um, to deter the Lord Jesus from his mission, verses 22 and 23. And he will use all of his powers to deter us from following the path that Jesus calls us to. But Jesus gives us motivation in verses 25 through 27. Those who follow him as he calls us to will find eternal life as he promised, verse 25. He urges us not to consider the greatest riches of this world as more valuable than the eternal joy of your own, of your own uh, soul, verse 26. And finally, he promises that he will one day return and reward those who follow him and judge those who don't, verse 27. And so for all those reasons, let's listen to the call of Jesus, deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him. That's what we've been thinking about recently in Sunday school. Uh, the reward eternally outweighs the cost and finally what in the world does jesus mean in matthew 16 28 um let me just say a, a brief word about matthew 16 28 a lot of people have been puzzled over what jesus means there when he says truly i say to you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom what does Jesus mean here? Some see that, I guess, as a failed prophecy. They say, well, all these disciples died and Jesus still hasn't returned. But is that what Jesus is saying here? I don't believe so. We don't have time to go into extreme detail. Um, we could say more about it some other time. But I, I believe that Jesus, what, what Jesus says here is fulfilled in the next chapter in the transfiguration. I don't believe it's coincidental 
that the transfiguration takes place immediately after Jesus says this, not only in Matthew's gospel, but in Mark's gospel in chapter 9 and in Luke's gospel in chapter 9. In the transfiguration, the disciples sort of got a, a sneak preview, as it were, of the glory Jesus will possess when he comes in his kingdom. So the bottom line is Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 28 are not a failed prophecy, but I believe are fulfilled in the transfiguration story in the very next chapter. This is a very rich chapter, Matthew chapter 16. And I hope you read it before we <laughs> said a word about it, but I hope after we have talked about it, you might go read it again. What a, what a great chapter.